Hey, everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast of Catholic conversation that is great on a weekly basis. I'm your host and the Pillar's editor in chief, JD Flynn, and I am joined this week by my podcasting partner, the Pillar co founder and editor, Ed Condon. Ed, hello. Happy New Year, JD. Happy New Year to you. This is our, um, this isn't our inaugural episode of the Pillar Podcast, but it is, uh, our, our, our inaugural episode was kind of an introductory episode of just like, hey, we, we're making a podcast and it's called The Pillar. This is our first getting serious, getting into it, doing the work episode of The Pillar Podcast. So I'm glad to be, glad to be here with you. I, I couldn't imagine not doing this podcast with you, JD. It, it would, the thought made me a little teary, I, you know. As long as we got each other, we got the world okay. spinning right in our hands. I was going to say the show must go on. Okay, well, that's probably better. <laughs> um, you know. For younger listeners, that um, that song that I sang was the theme song to um, uh, to uh, a sitcom that now I forget the name of it, Growing Pains, to, to a sitcom called Growing Pains that featured Kirk Cameron. You might know Kirk Cameron from such things as um, a bunch of evangelical movies about the world ending, but uh, he used to be in a sitcom called... Uh, called Growing Pains, and a uh, little-known fact about Growing Pains, it is also the place where one Leonardo DiCaprio got his start. Is this the same one where all of the adult lady stars went to prison for fraud getting their kids into college? No, you're thinking of, first of all, Lori Loughlin, so Aunt Becky from Full House, and then, um, I, I don't know, Felicity Huffman maybe went to jail as well, the lady from, um, the lady from uh, um, Desperate Housewives. Oh, she definitely went to jail. Um, but I know that because I know Felicity Huffman not from any of her television work, but because uh, one of the Christmas stories, which I like to read to the misses over the course of the Christmas season, is a John Grisham novel called Skipping Christmas, which they made into a film called Christmas with the Cranks, um, which is still nice. I, I have read Skipping Christmas. I didn't know that it was a movie. Yeah, they made a movie. It's Tim Allen and uh, the you know the woman who professionally plays Mrs. Tim Allen on TV shows and films. Uh in uh, she was in you know the thing he did where he pretended he was Bob Vila. Oh, the lady from Home Improvement, Patricia yeah. Arquette, maybe is her name. Maybe I, I don't name. know the woman who professionally plays Tim Allen's wife and stuff. Oh, okay, I I didn't know. Anyway, so yeah, but uh, Felicity Huffman plays you know sort of a snotty middle class neighbor who disapproves during one lunch scene, and that's how I know her. <laughs> you know, Felicity Huffman was also in, and I did not anticipate that this, that the the thrust of this show would be about Felicity Huffman, but he, here we are. Um, and here it goes. It's um, 2021, and we don't know what's going to happen. Jamie. We don't know what's going to happen. We do not know, folks, how important Felicity Huffman will prove to be for all of us this year. But if she proves to be important, this podcast will be looked at someday as prophetic. Felicity Huffman, Ed, was also in um, a television program that I like that I've tried to get you onto before called Sports Night. It was Aaron Sorkin's first television project, and it was an Aaron Sorkin sitcom about kind of about ESPN, I guess. Yeah, I look, I, I know you're an Aaron Sorkin <laughs> devotee, and, and that's fine. I also like some of his stuff, but Aaron Sorkin is definitely a hit or miss egomaniac. And you don't care for Sports Night. You've watched it. I do not care for Sports Night. I thought I thought Studio Fifty on the Sunset. Yeah, it was not that good. Whatever it was, it was terrible. Yeah. It wasn't good. Yeah, but I mean, again, it was sanctimonious problem, and self righteous. And well, but the problem was in in Studio Fifty, he was writing his own. Fan, he was writing Aaron Sorkin fanfic. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was, was, was self parodying. Extremely tedious. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved The West Wing. I thought that was great writing. Everyone does. <clears throat> a few good men. You like a few good men. I, uh, yeah, I went to see his Broadway adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird uh, a couple of years ago, whatever that was. Was it 
fourteen. Yeah, something like I that. I think. Anyway, and he was actually at the back of the theater because um, it was like the first week, and he, he was he was. I, I would I would describe him as appearing tired and emotional. Oh, I see. Um, I see. And, agi- agitated. And yet it's somehow frenetic at the same time. Yes, exactly. I, a contained ball of restless energy, I would describe Mr. Sorkin that evening. Um, but I didn't care for his adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. I thought it was... Uh, it, uh, it used the device of casting adults as children, um, which, you know, I don't know if it... I don't know if the sort of ur example of that is Blue Remembered Hills, but, you know, as, a, as an artistic device, it doesn't appeal to me. I think there are plenty of competent child actors. And it it get, lends the whole thing an unbalanced air. I thought it was tedious. Also, he recycled a lot of dialogue from the West Wing into To Kill a Mockingbird, which again I think is you know Aaron Sorkin's primary audience is Aaron Sorkin's ego. Right. Um, how did why why are we talking about this? We're on a tangent from Felicity Huffman. Right, right. We got to get back to the main thing here, which is Felicity Huffman. We are going to move away from Felicity Huffman and away from Aaron Sorkin <laughs> because this show, the Pillar Podcast, is a show about uh, about. Uh, about news and analysis of the Catholic Church from a perspective of faith, from our perspective of faith, and also from our experience as Catholic journalists. Uh, if you want to uh, know about our work as Catholic journalists, check us out at PillarCatholic.com. Subscribe to our newsletters and our investigative reporting. The Pillar is our journalistic project, uh, which you can check out at PillarCatholic.com. Our work on this podcast, the Pillar Podcast, is to talk about the news um, of the church from our perspective of faith and from our work as journalists. And our intention on this show is to talk, Ed, because we are recording the show on New Year's Day, Jan 1, 2021. Uh, our intention is to talk about some of the things that we think will be the uh, some of the bigger Catholic stories of this year. Um, of course, it's hard to, um, you know, prediction is, uh, is, a, is like economics, I suppose, a dismal science. Um, and, uh, and I think if we had made very many predictions in 2020, we would have missed some of the bigger stories of the year, as would have any human being. Um, but, uh, but we're at least going to take a crack at talking about some of the things that we think will be some of the biggest Catholic stories of 2021 and, uh, and, and stories that we will be covering at The Pillar, uh, PillarCatholic.com. And, Ed, the, uh, a story that it seems to me that we at least could start with is, um, is rooted in a development of our ongoing coverage as journalists of the Vatican finance scandal, uh, the, the reform and work of Vatican finances, and um, uh, a, a development that occurred last week in that, um, in that milieu, as it were. It certainly did. I, I was really surprised. I, you know, we often, we, you and I, as we've been talking uh, over the last week or two, you know, my, my sort of standard line has been, uh, Nothing, nothing particularly ground-shaking is going to happen between Christmas and New Year's because nothing particularly ground-shaking ever happens between Christmas and New Year's. And lo and behold, um, Pope Francis issued a motu proprio, uh, which he entitled uh, Una Migliore Organizzazione, a better way of doing things, if you like, a better organization. Uh, and this did something remarkable. It, uh, it, and, and I mean, it was kind of this a punctuation mark on something that's been trending for a little while, but he stripped the Secretariat of State of its entire asset portfolio. All of it. Yeah. Like, took it all. He took basically said to the Secretary of State, you can have the amount of money you need to, um, uh, you know, to, to cover your work, your approved working budget for the, the fiscal year that we're in, and that's it. So the Secretary of State, which had been sort of had this been a central repository of cash for the church and managed funds that were Peter Pence funds and other things, is basically now down to, you know, the, the cash that it needs to keep the lights on in its offices, uh, and that's about it. 
Right. And I mean, to be clear, from uh, from sort of August, Francis has been making clear that he's that he was ordering the Secretary of State to transfer sort of, if you like, it's uh, the liquid assets it was it was controlling on behalf of the of, of the Vatican, the Roman Curia, the global church, however you want to look at it. But this this goes a lot further than that. I mean, this is really taking taking their taking their credit card away. Um, and so what I found particularly interesting was the if you followed um, in the sort of gruesome forensic detail, the unfolding of Vatican financial scandals over the last sort of two, three years, which I have, I have <laughs> many of our listeners have uh, f- this is this is my 2021 would be my fifth year reporting on Vatican finances. Um, and this is a big milestone. This is a huge milestone along the, the, the timeline and trajectory of the, the Vatican financial affairs that we've been paying attention to and covering. That's right. And it, in, in many ways, this source to sort of recap and address them, albeit uh, as, as subtext rather than text. So for uh, for one thing, it's a, it specifically mentions the Holy Father's discretionary fund, uh, which is being given over to APSA and taken completely outside of the Secretary's scroll. And of course, there are uh, what we could call reasonably credible uh, allegations that the Holy Father's discretionary fund, this is separate to Peter's Pence. This is literally the Pope's personal private discretionary bank account that is purely for the things that he wants to do in the person of Francis, not as, you know, Peter's Pence is to support the sort of the work of the Holy Father, whether it's in the Roman Curia or, you know, charitable giving across the world. But uh, this is even sort of more personal. Uh, but the the there are some allegations that uh, on during his time at the Secretary of State, Cardinal Angelo Becciu basically siphoned off money from this account to underwrite or prop up some pretty speculative investments. So to have that sort of spelled out in there was interesting. There was a specific provision that officials in the Roman Curia and especially the Secretary of State can't serve on uh, on the boards of uh, external companies which the Vatican has a financial stake in. Which was in a or... problem because during the tra- during the sale of the for example the London SA Limited uh, property, the London in, the London luxury uh, you know apartment development complex that the Holy See was invested in. One of the issues was that during the transfer of shares of that property from Raffaele Mincioni to the Holy See vis-a-vis Gianluigi Torsi, there were uh, Secretary of State officials who were, were become. There was at least one Secretary of State official who became a board member of a company of Gianluigi Torsi, which is an odd. Uh, it, it's actually more interesting than that. Uh, what happened was. The London ownership of the London building was in the process of being transferred from the ownership of Raffaele Mincioni's companies to the Secretary of State. How they elected to do this was to empower Gianluigi Torzi to act as a middleman. And so Gianluigi Torzi's shell company in Luxembourg called Goot S.A. received control and ownership of the building through receiving control and ownership of several shell companies that ultimately owned the building. But anyway, for the purposes of brevity, Goot S.A., Torzi's company, takes possession of the London building. He is then accused of using the shell company and control of the shell company, and therefore control of the building, to extort the Vatican. Right, basically to create a new sort of class of shares that the Vatican would have to pay an unanticipated amount of money for uh, in order to... But basically, having got his hands on control of this London building for hundreds of millions of euros... Jacking up the price and holding the Holy See hostage. And while he was in the process of doing this, allegedly... um, Fabrizio Tirabassi, a lay official in control of making investment decisions at the Secretary of State, 
was made a board member right. of Goot SA, which at least if it doesn't imply complicity, it certainly is a very, very messy place for him to be in the middle of all of this while that company was being used to extort the Vatican. So that was a line item in this yeah. mm-hmm. uh, in this uh, in this motu proprio, which I found amusing. Uh, there, there was a lot in there to unpack that was fun, but I, I think stepping back from the minutia of the motu proprio, I think something that's worth talking about here is what does this mean for the overall trend of curial reform? Because that is, if you like, the Ur project of the Francis papacy, that when he was elected, he wasn't elected to, to, to do or speak or, you know, with the expectation that he would get involved in many of the things that have become sort of signature Francis style and issues. But the sort of the first thing on the papal to-do list when he was elected was very much restructure and clean up the curia. Right. And what does this tell us about that project? Because it has been going on. The creation of the Council of Cardinal Advisors, the drafting of a new constitution for the for the Roman Curia. This has all been rumbling on in the background for the whole of Pope Francis's reign. Well, this move with the Secretary of State is a sea change to the Pope's plans for that, right? Because a year ago we were talking about the we were talking about the, the governing documents of the of the of the curial reform, which which would have placed the Secretary of State in in a central and more empowered position than ever before, which would have made the Secretary of State not only the most powerful dicastery, but um, a dicastery exercising a, a considerable amount of control over all other dicasteries, fundamentally creating a sort of office of vice pope. Um, and uh, and this, the degree to which this is a flip from that. So to go from that, a plan by which Paroline would have. Uh, by, by which the Secretary of State, now Paroline, would have exercised extraordinary influence within the Roman Curia to one in which he can't hang on to the, the credit card anymore or the checkbook, is a, is, a tremendous, is a tremendous sea change. And I find it interesting because it, it actually, to me, is indicative of something that I, I've been saying on this show for a while, which is that the Pope actually, I, I am, the Pope actually is doing the work of reform um, on, on, uh, on sexual abuse stuff, which is another thing that we cover, you know, we have seen the Pope create Vos Estes Lex Mundi. We have seen the Pope before that create Como Una Madre. We have seen the Pope create um, mechanisms for accountability and, uh, and, and reform, and not all of them have worked. And what's sort of interesting is when one of them doesn't work, the Pope tends to sort of like shelve it or informally jettison it and then sort of start from the drawing board. And And, and one problem with that is that he doesn't always sort of rescind things, so you have sort of stacked up laws that don't necessarily all align with each other. But you do see the Pope sort of pivoting according to the circumstances or according to what doesn't work, does work or doesn't work. And here's an example where um, you thought that the, the reform of the Roman Curia was going to go in one direction, and it has gone in a remarkably different direction. And, and, and largely, I think, it's a consequence of the unfolding, uh, the public unfolding of this financial scandal and the way in which the Secretary of State's management of finances has been exposed and uh, to have been um, negligent at the very least, um, uh, malicious on the part of some and negligent at the very least. And so you see the Pope sort of just, okay, well, then we're going to attack in this direction instead of that direction. You know, you you could make the criticism, I think, that sort of policy changes developed by the Pope, that the Pope is... um, how do, how do I want to say this? You could make the criticism that the Pope's approach to these kinds of things, rather than being sort of systematic, is personality-driven and, and personnel-driven, that um, if there's somebody he trusts, he gives them a lot of authority. If the, he loses the trust in the person, he withdraws the authority or withdraws the, the, the discretionary spending authority or whatever, um, rather than um, rather than sort of saying, okay, si- what would a systematic um, overhaul of this place look like in in 
And, and in my sort of American mind, that would mean, okay, we're going to create laws that says for everybody what their discretionary spending authority is, what thresholds of a demarcated authority are. Uh, we're going to sort of create universal policies about accounts. And the Pope sort of gets started in that way, but it's all sort of dependent on one person we really trust or a group of people we really trust. When he realizes he can't trust them, he tax. But, um, but again, it, it's either an Italian way of doing things or a, it's not at the very least sort of my Anglo-Saxon preference way of doing things, which is let's make a gigantic system instead of let's react to the situation of the personnel who are there. Um, but you can't say that the Pope isn't actually working at reform when you see these kinds of things happening. That's for sure. And I think what you say about this being a lot um, the, the general direction of reform always being driven and occasionally turning sharply uh, in line with with personnel being policy around the Pope, this is especially true of Cardinal Paroline. You know, you said that you know, a previous draft of the of the coming, forthcoming, ever forthcoming <laughs> new constitution for the Vatican Curia, Predicata Evangelium, uh, placed the Secretary of State as sort of the absolute center of the wheel. Yeah. And it was, you know, it would have made Paroline effectively vice Pope. Mm-hmm. He would have had ultimate control of coordinating all the other curial departments it would have been he would have had the final say on what issues what documents what things for approval made it to the papal desk and which didn't giving him effective power of veto um over you know sort of the pontifical agenda which was mind-boggling uh, as, as a centralization of power but that actually wasn't the first iteration of reform and this is what i think is really interesting is we've seen the tide of Paroline come in and go out again that the very first sort of blueprint for reform, which was created by the Council of Cardinal Advisors, before Paroline was added to it um, as a cardinal, because Paroline didn't start off the, right. the Francis papacy as Secretary of State. It was There was a brief period where Bertone. Cardinal Bertone uh, sort of continued on. I, I almost said in office. He was... We don't need to talk about Bertone right now. When you have a change of administration, you don't change all the officials on the very first day. So Bertone exactly. was in office for a little while while the Pope figured out what he wanted to do. But the original view, the original vision for a reformed curia, the very first draft, if you like, was that the Secretary of State would be diminished somewhat or possibly broken up because it has these sort of multiple sections, some for diplomatic affairs, some for the governance of the Vatican City State, some for sort of internal church work. And, you know, it, 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 it's a big department with a lot to do. And so the original vision was, well, maybe we should just break this up yeah, and have two or three smaller departments. Right. Uh, side sidecar to that was the financial reforms that Pope Francis ordered from his first days in, led in the beginning by Cardinal Pell. Mm-hmm. And the sort of signature reforms that Pell wanted to bring in were the centralization of all curial assets and bank accounts. Just a systematization of financial administration. Saying we are one Roman curia, we should be able to have all of this on paper, and you know the person in charge of auditing the finances and the books for every department should be able to read it all. In the same way that if you work in a chancery, your department prepares its section of its you know budget for the next fiscal year, and uh, every department does, and all rolls up to the finance officer, and the finance officer reviews it and says, okay, we have to make across the board cuts of this, or okay, we can give more money to this department because the bishop wants to spend money on X, but. You're operating as part of a system instead of each department of the Roman Curia, which fundamentally operates as its own entity. Um, exactly. Not not so much um, one Roman Curia as sort of, you know, a federalist system was yeah. what was going on where everyone has their own. Anyway, so these were the two sort of key Pell reforms financially was centralize accounting and asset management and make sure that there's, you know, a, a, at least within house transparency, not mm-hmm. even like external transparency, like anyone can Google the state of all the Vatican finances, but at least so the person in charge of Vatican finances can see it all. Right. And what happened was 
both of these financial reforms and the drift of carrier reform were reversed. That the idea to break up the Secretary of State was killed stone dead. In fact, reversed and the Secretary of State got bigger and more powerful in the second draft. Right. Pell's external audit was canceled uh, unilaterally by an official Cardinal Betchew with an Archbishop Betchew at the Secretary of State, which was, uh, as someone in the prefecture for the economy told, described to me at the time, uh, extra legal, <laughs> which I, I think was his, his way of trying to say diplomatically illegal as hell. Um and they got the Pope to sort of back the play as a fait accompli after the fact. Uh, and the other thing that they was they killed Stone Dead, this idea of centralizing all the Vatican accounts and mm-hmm. everything else. And they said, no, the Secretary of State is, you know, far too important, far too sovereign. We're engaged in far too sensitive affairs to possibly, you know, let people know what we're up to. And so that was as of sort of the middle of 2019. It looked like Paroline and his department had not just rolled back all the proposed reforms being advanced against it, but reversed the tide and gotten bigger and stronger and more powerful that he yeah. was very much the biggest beast in the jungle yeah and now <laughs> he's he's had the power of the purse taken away he's been i mean there's there's really no other way to describe this than to call it a public humiliation now here's what we need to talk about we need to talk about why this isn't just inside baseball why this isn't just oh this guy got it you know got his got the got the money taken away from his department because it's not just inside baseball and in terms of the big stories of 2021 this actually impacts a number of them the secretary of state the the holy see secretary of state is responsible for the church's relationship um with uh the church's relationship with with foreign governments so the apostolic nuncios the sort of pope's ambassadors to various countries um operate under the auspices of the secretary of state and that that impacts um two kinds of things so the Secretary of State has a function, odd extra, to engage with governments on questions like religious liberty uh, in parts of the world where the church's freedom is dramatically impinged. Um, and like also, China. Like China. And also has an odd intra-function because the Apostolic Nuncio also serves as a Pope's sort of emissary and eyes and ears and advisor on the state of the church in a particular country. And he plays a real role in the nomination and appointment of, of bishops, not singularly and um, in in concert with or under the aegis of the Congregation for Bishops, but he plays a real role. And so the Secretary of State, in a certain way, is uh, the Secretary of State, in a certain way, is the Pope's to, to, responsible for the Pope's day to day on the ground core of um, uh, of informers and responsible for engagement with. Um, with foreign governments. And one of the big stories of last year, of course, was the Vatican-China deal and the question of renewing the Vatican-China deal and freedom of the church in China and freedom of the church in Hong Kong as Hong Kong faced a radical crackdown of the freedoms that it has enjoyed uh, under under Chinese rule these last uh, two decades and a little and change. Uh, and, um, and there has always been concern and always been confusion about um, and always been speculation about the degree to which the Holy See's Secretary of State might in some way be influenced by China or it seemed clearly, clearly it seems that the, the Holy See's China policy, the desire to have an agreement on the nomination of bishops and generally to sort of be um, conciliatory towards China uh, and the government in Beijing is, um, is, 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 a, is, is a project led by the Secretary of State or that Perlin is, the, is among the biggest cheerleaders and certainly the most powerful cheerleader, 
for the idea of an extremely conciliatory relationship with Beijing. And Perilene's line has always been, well, yeah, there are Christians who are, well, Perilene's line had been there are Christians who are being persecuted in China, but the best thing that we can do to assure the freedom of Christians in China is to try to have some normalized relationships with Beijing. A lot of Chinese have pushed back on that, and at a certain point, Perilene even pushed, himself pushed back on the idea that there is persecution in China, which is just not consistent with the facts at all. And there has he always been... slightly push back. His exact words were... But what persecution? Yeah, but what persecution? Right, exactly. So Perlin has pushed back on the idea, as I said, that there's right that there's persecution of Christians in China, which is just not consistent with the facts as evidenced by any anybody with eyes. Um, and so there has always been a question. Um, there has not ever been evidence of this, uh, but there has always been a question of whether or not there is some um, Chinese influence in the Secretary of State that is not manifestly clear and transparent um, that is driving Perlene to make these uh, to make these decisions. And there has often been a question about whether there's a Chinese financial interest in the Secretary of State um, or uh, that that has led to some of these things. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And if the facts led me there, I would look at the facts, but I don't I'm sort of not given towards those kind of conspiracies. But at the very least, there have been questions about the Secretary of State money in China. and, And that's a big deal. It is a big deal. I think it's also the extent to which Perilene has swung a big stick in terms of curial personnel and staffing at the highest level uh, and and to which his uh, inclinations and the, how he's used his influence have been influenced by his own personal stake in the China deal and relations right. between the Vatican and China is a big thing. I mean, Cardinal Filoni, who was until... Uh, it was this year that... Was it this year or was it 2019? Yeah, yeah, it was this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when Cardinal Filoni was summarily replaced as head of the Congregation for the Evangelizations of Peoples, Propaganda Fide, um, it was considered very surprising that this, right. you know, Cardinal Filoni was an incredibly competent, incredibly seasoned guy, not at all sort of political, very much had a, an evangelist's heart. And, and Prop Fide for listeners is the dicastery, the Vatican office that's responsible for overseeing the church in missionary parts of the world. So parts of the world where there's not... Um, an established uh, ecclesi- a, a, a well-established ecclesiastical hierarchy where the church is in a tenuous position, either financially or in terms of re- religious persecution or just a very small minority. Cardinal Filoni was, for example, the JP2 special ambassador to Iraq mm-hmm. uh, at yeah. the turn of the millennium. He, he literally wrote the book on the history of the church in Iraq. And, and I think you translated that book into English, didn't you? I did, although that was not the purpose of my mentioning. <laughs> uh, anyway... But so you had this incredibly seasoned guy, and and he was suddenly moved sideways into the relative non-job of head of the the order of the Holy Sepulchre, and from everyone I talked to, it was it wasn't just that he, it wasn't that he was speaking against the China deal that Paraline was pushing, um, he wasn't. I I was trying desperately to see if he ever would, and but it was that he was insufficiently supportive right. that he was not shouting his support for the China deal from the rooftops that. At least according to some of the people I talked to, Paralin was very keen to see him move from the job, and he's now been replaced with Cardinal Cito Tagle, who I think you can you can certainly say has a a, a far more a more uh, pliable specific. attitude towards China or a more nuanced attitude towards China. He's yeah, he's he's not he's not a China hawk by any stretch of the imagination. And so the the um, the he's willing, if you like, to you know to spin the wheel. Right. So the limitation Perfect. on Paralin. The financial limitation on Perlene has, has, you know, uh, for the conspiracy theorists, and again, 
show me the facts and I'll believe it. But for the conspiracy theorists, there's a question of like, does this obviate or mitigate some influence that China had in the Secretary of State that was financial? But for everyone else, I mean, I think there's a real question of does just Perilene's being taken down um, in terms of influence in the China will the, in the in the Roman Curia will that have an influence on the Vatican's ongoing relationship with China? People like Cardinal Zen and others have uh, have been extremely critical of of, uh, of the China deal. Cardinal Bo, who is the president of the um, Asian Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, has been critical of Chinese persecution of Christians and Catholics, especially. So there are certainly voices who would like the Holy See to take. Uh, a hard line on China's religious persecution and push against it instead of being conciliatory with the Chinese government. And with Perilene sort of losing rather dramatically status inside the Roman Curia, will those voices have more potentially more influence with Pope Francis in terms of what the church's relationship with um, Christians in China, with, excuse me, with Beijing will be as regards Christians in China? Absolutely. And just to be clear, this is, you know, this one moto proprio last week that we're talking about now. This isn't, you know, we're not inferring a lot from one event that there was actually a pattern this was the this was the punctuation mark on a long year exclamation in twenty twenty yeah yeah exactly an exclamation mark after a long year of rolling back Paraline's authority in twenty twenty I mean there was um it was in March uh, you you may remember this I don't know how many people will remember this but it was for me one of the most fascinating things that has happened in Kirill reform ever which was on a Friday it was the first Friday of March I think there was an announcement that there were there a new Director General's Office for Personnel in the Roman Curia is being created and centered in the Secretary of State. In other words, there was going to be this department within the Department of the Secretary of State that was going to have oversight and control and management of all personnel. Yeah, exactly. So they so they would issues. control HR for everybody, basically. For everybody. And it was announced and said, this is what's going to happen, um, which is a big deal for those of us who are, you know, who nerd out about the Roman Curia. But on Saturday morning, they put out another one and said, no, that never happened. That was false. That that was that that announcement was made in error. It's not happening. It's not happening. So clearly what happened is that there was some discussion of it and somebody got ahead of themselves and put out something that was in draft form or under consideration. And um, and then the Holy See was very quick to say, no, 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 no. The Secretary of State is not going to control personnel in that way. So I don't think that I don't actually think that's what happened. I think what happened was if you look at who's in charge of what press releases go out when, it's the Secretary for Communications in the Salastampe. It is in fact ultimately the Secretary of State. And I think that, and this is a tactic that we saw with. You think the, that the Secretary of State put it out in a, you know, in with uh, fundamentally with a challenge of say no. Yeah, to bounce the Pope into well, this is exactly how they canceled the audit with Pell. Right, right. Is they just put out a statement saying the audit has been canceled, and then basically dared Pell, dared Pell to push back on it and and to go to the yeah. Holy Father and push around. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that could be. Well, I mean, I, th- I would put that in the category of got ahead of themselves, but you know. <laughs> no, I think this time they got their hand caught in the drawer, and but I mean, this was in March, and there's been a steady drumbeat. The the pattern is important. I think you're right about it, and the pattern is important because. Um, it, it's not sort of just it's not we're not sort of just sort of looking at yeah um the po- people's position in court so to speak um for the sake of courtier gossip this kind of stuff dramatically influences policy and in this case may well dramatically influence the policy of the church's relationship with china which dramatically influences the lives of christians in china and you know uh, the holy Se- the secretary of state's line has always been we are preventing persecution of christians or preventing the ordinate the illicit ordination of bishops in china which is a genuine and real problem um but the pushback has always been no you are in fact um empowering um xi jinping's agenda of sinicization of religion and undercutting the missionary witness of the gospel in China and undercutting the missionary um, agenda of the church in China to proclaim the gospel, even to the point um, of, of persecution. 
and uh, and that voice may well, I think, have more space within the Roman Curia, and ultimately have more space with the Holy Father in under these circumstances. That I think is absolutely the case. Other implications that you see outside baseball, so to speak. I mean, large scale implications that you see of um, of the Secretary of State's move. I mean, obviously, in terms of Vatican financial reform, it in itself takes a lot of financial control out of an area where a lot of financial control is being mismanaged. Are there other well, implications that you see for that? Sure. I, most immediately, there have been, and we've seen this in the sort of uh, in announcements from Swiss financial courts and law enforcement, because you know. We all we're all reading those things every day, right? That's not just me. But anyway, um, we we know that the the Holy See has been trying basically to get access to banking records for Holy See accounts that were controlled by the Secretary of State in banks in Lugano, right? Um, and basically, the the Secretary of State has been trying to prevent the Holy See from seeing its own bank records there because they don't want to get caught doing whatever it was they were doing. And broadly speaking, Vatican prosecutors and investigators have been winning in this. But one of the the final provisions, or I should say central provisions of this motu proprio is to say, you are going to immediately provide a power of attorney to APSA and the Secretariat for the Economy so that they can cut you out of the management of these accounts. We are fed up with the obfuscation and trying to hide what's been going on. So, I mean, this is, for those with eyes to see, this motu proprio is a big deal yeah it's a big deal in terms of its indications about the wider direction of carol reform and it's a big deal narrowly in uh, in assessing the seriousness with which the ongoing financial scandals are being prosecuted because uh, th- this is 2021 is going to see some serious fireworks on this i think that's right let's talk about another uh, let's talk about another issue um another issue that will be a considerable church story in 2021 and it's a church story that has begun already and <laughs> really been um, there have been there have been ecclesiastical there have been any number of ecclesiastical implications obviously of the coronavirus pandemic um, that have been ma- major uh, major stories and major issues for the church not only the closure of churches um, and you know kind of questions about the liturgical authority of bishops but the potential financial fallout of the pandemic and church attendance a question of uh, a question of whether, in fact, um, a number, you know, a large number of people will not return to the to, to mass once people are able to attend mass in an unrestricted way, and whether that will, which is whether that will, if it if it happens, sort of occasion um, a m- much broader commitment to the project of evangelization and a rethinking of the parish as an agent of evangelization instead of sort of an if you build it they will come thing, which which can which can sometimes be a mentality. Oh, I don't though I don't think it's mentality among. Among many uh, among many pastors today, but just a, a reprioritization or or far deeper prioritization of evangelization. So those have all been uh, pandemic stories related to the church that that we'll have to continue to pay attention to. The polling says that uh, Catholics say that they intend to go to church more often once they're able to go to church again. Although um, you know if that's true, it's awesome. If it's not true, um, then then a, a set of questions arises about how to respond to that. But um, it. Uh, in the vein of pandemic stories, um, really since the beginning, has been um, a, a story about the relationship between uh, conspiracy theories regarding the pandemic and the church. Um, you will remember at a certain time, at, at, the, at the, towards the beginning of the pandemic and towards the beginning of um, sort of widespread lockdowns, and, and by my saying this, I'm not endorsing this sort of policy of widespread lockdowns because I think there have been real and obvious sort of gaffes in the way that these policies have been meted out and administered and real and serious issues 
And abuse. And genuine abuse of them as well, to, to be sure, and, and no doubt, and, and real, I think, infringements on religious liberty and, and, and unequal treatment of, of religious organizations, to be sure. But there has been um, a, a narrative, you will remember, Ed, that um, Archbishop Vigano released um, a letter that towards the beginning of the pandemic that said, you know, that the pandemic was being orchestrated by a globalist force that wanted to use it to gain widespread social control um, and usher in um, a, a new world order, and that there was a controversy about whether um, Cardinal Seurat had signed that letter or not, and ultimately Cardinal Seurat said he hadn't signed that letter, and um, you'll remember that an American diocesan bishop, Bishop Joe Strickland of Texas, did sign that letter and confirmed rather definitively that he had signed that letter. Well, and has Bishop Strickland has appeared uh, either you know sort of virtually on stage with right. some of the uh, more strident proponents of these these kinds of theories. So, so that's where I was going to go is that there has been this strain of, of this kind of thing uh, among the church's response to the pandemic. And, and, you know, you've seen priests on YouTube who have gained big following saying that they would, you know, n- they'll never take a vaccine and the virus is made up and things like that. Um, I, I just want to say on a personal note that my family spent most of December having the virus and it's the sickest that I've ever been. It's the sickest that Mrs. Flynn has ever been. It's probably the sickest. Well, it's, it's among the sickest times that the children have ever had. It was horrible. And I'm like a month out from having gotten it and I still have residual symptoms and so does Mrs. Flynn. So the virus is a real thing. I mean, you know, there are lots of, but the virus is a real thing. Um, but, but one, but one way in which that uh, sort of one world government social control strain has developed is, um, is into a set of voices who are absolutely and fundamentally opposed uh, to uh, the administration of vaccines for the coronavirus. And um, and a line of argumentation coming from uh, Catholics saying that um, use of the vaccine is wrong because, um, and here are the facts vary in terms of what they actually say, but that use of the vaccine is wrong because of some connection between the development of the vaccine and abortion. Um, now, the Holy See has gone out of its way over and over again to clarify that um, uh, that if it is true that um, the vac- that the development of some or the testing of some vaccines has involved uh, fetal cell lines dev- derived from a child who was aborted in the 1970s, um, it, that abortion was wrong. Um, that kind of testing should be opposed, but the kind of moral cooperation that a person who takes the vaccine has in those things is um, so remote and um, and so um, uh, involuntary as not to uh, not to uh, uh, suggest that they shouldn't take the vaccine. And in fact, that you know the common good suggests that people should take consider very seriously taking the vaccine. And if they don't take the vaccine, they should consider very seriously their obligation to the common good and other ways in which they can serve the common good. Um, The Holy See has been really strong on that. Now, the Holy See has been saying about vaccines since the 90s, um, hey, uh, there there are ways in which vaccines have been developed with or tested on fetal cell lines from the 70s. That is wrong. Um, and Catholics should speak for uh, more ethical development and testing of vaccines, and we should speak out for that deliberately and definitively. But um, taking vaccines that have been developed in those ways is not it's in itself wrong, because uh, 
because the the cooperation between the the abortion that took place and the actual taking of a vaccine is so remote, and there's so many levels of mediation between it, and so many things which are, you know, some the the, the fact that there aren't um, viable alternatives in many cases, and vaccines serve the common good, and just um, an application of moral reasoning. And I'm not a moral theologian, but there is a a, a measured application of moral reasoning that says, yeah, there is this bad thing. Um, this thing has some material cooper, you know, some material correlation to it, but. Um, the participation in it is so remote that um, it doesn't represent a, a moral issue. And, you know, in fact, we can all think about the way in which the technological devices that we use, the cars that we drive, the products that we consume um, have regrettable and, and problematic um, correlation to abortion because of either the donations of corporations or the donations of the leaders of those corporations. And as much as we should speak out against that and Frankly, I should speak out against that more often. The church has been rather clear that there is a point at which you are not responsible for the moral choices of people who are several steps removed from you. And so that's the church's teaching, but there have been voice after voice, you know, sort of saying, no, 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 we can't take the vaccines because if we do, we're essentially consenting to abortion. Not just consenting, encouraging. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been, this This has been said publicly by a number of prominent uh, public Catholics um, and, and I think it's, first of all, it shows a complete failure to understand the church's moral teaching. And there's a reason why we have things like the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. There are things like, there are reasons why we have things like the Pontifical Academy for Life. There are things, there are reasons why we have things like the USCCB, which has also been very clear and strong um, and coherent on this, as well as some state Catholic conferences. The bishops of Illinois put out a joint statement that was entirely in lockstep with the USCCB, which is entirely in lockstep with the CDF. And, you know, for people who sort of think that this is a, a sort of Episcopal political issue and conservative bishops are one way and, uh, you know, more liberal. I, don't, I, I hate using the word conservative and liberal yeah, yeah. to describe bishops in the church because it's just totally a misnomer. But, yeah. you know, if you want to call them blue and yellow bishops, for example, um, you just think that blue bishops are on one side and yellow bishops are on another. It ain't true. Because if you think that Bishop Paprocki of Springfield and Cardinal Supich of Chicago or, or Cardinal Supich of Chicago are signing a document um, and that there's somehow, a, you know, political division in the church over something, you are dead wrong that, you know, both of those people, if they genuinely disagreed about something, would not sign off on a thing suggesting agreement. Both of those people are, whatever you think of their convictions, have convictions and uh, and would not sort of sign off on something unless they, uh, unless they uh, something that was from their Episcopal conference, unless they wanted to. And so there is broad exactly. understanding of the church's, there's broad understanding among people who've been formed in the church's moral teaching on the church's moral teaching on this. Yes. Every bishop with his miter screwed on right is saying exactly the same thing about this at exactly the same time. Now, I want to stress, this is not to say that everyone, that anyone or everyone is saying you have to get the vaccine or a vaccine. No, I don't think anyone should ever be compelled or coerced to get a vaccine. There are real considerations about the common good. It's not even a question of, uh, you know, you or I think that. The CDF said this in terms, said that basically they used, I forget what the exact circumlocution they used was, but I, I loved it because it was, it was Romanese for basically saying common sense tells you yeah. that it is never acceptable to compel someone to receive a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That you can't do this. This is a question of bodily integrity, right? Um, so, so no one is saying that. But the the sort of weird ecosystem, which is allied to political conspiracy theorism, um, which is turning this into a conversation about Catholics rejecting the moral teaching of the church, not saying, "Hey, there's a legitimate exercise of conscience to be made here that says I don't have to receive the vaccine if I don't want to," which is fine. 
But not not stopping there, turning around and saying, no, I'm rejecting the church's teaching and I'm rejecting the church's authority to make that teaching. And I am saying that I, a Catholic with, you know, a lot of Twitter followers, but no background in moral theology, no background in medicine, epidemiology, anything like that, I have decided I know better. Is what these people are saying. Just to clarify, that's not what it's saying. That's what these people are saying. That's what's being said. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And and it's amazing to me. Yeah, I don't have a lot of Twitter followers, but I have a lot. I mean, I have, you know, JD, I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that much training in moral theology. I mean, I don't, I have a master's degree in theology, but I, but I don't have a specialization in morals by any stretch of the imagination. I have a degree in canon law, but canon law is not moral theology. And moral theology is a complex area in which I understand the rudiments. And if someone wants to like talk about Germaine Grisey for 10 minutes, I can they could, after 10 minutes, someone talking about Jermaine Grisey will realize that I don't understand Grisey, but I think I can hold it, hang in for 10 minutes. Um, I'm not a theologian. I couldn't hang in there even for 10 but minutes. I, but, I, but, I, but the point is, you know, I, I, what, what I think is worth recognizing is that the church has a, an acutely developed um, body of, uh, of magisterium and intellectual work unpacking that magisterium on the issue of complicated bioethical and moral you know and uh, bioethical biomoral questions that have developed in the technological revolution of the last you know 70 years and there's a lot more work to be done there but the the cool thing is that the basis of developing um, answers on complicated bioethical questions of the contemporary world is that the principles uh, by which they are developed are the perennial principles of the church's moral doctrine and uh, and so you know it's 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 a it's a complicated thing to apply them but um but we are the one of the great things about being Catholic is that um, we are blessed by the gift the gift of the magisterium, which allows us on questions that uh, of immense complexity and immense difficulty um, to look to those who are entrusted with um, interpreting the deposit of faith authentically to look to the magisterium, and then um, to look to the gift of the body of the church's intellectual tradition, which unpacks and develops and makes use of that magisterial teaching to apply it to complicated situations. I, you know, having grown up um, largely un, without, with no awareness of a Christian intellectual tradition, discovering a Catholic intellectual tradition was a game changer for my whole life because, wow, here are, uh, here is a, here is a, a 2000 year old corpus of thought guided by people who are, who authentically interpret the magisterium on, on these complicated questions. And we can lean into that and lean back on that. And, and what's, you know, what dissent is of any kind is, um, is, is the kind of hubris that says, um, looking at all of that, and especially looking at the idea that we have a church in which our, our, which the bishops are entrusted with unpacking, um, the deposit of faith in an authentic way, which we can trust through the Holy Spirit, looking at all of that, you know, I disagree, uh, you know, I, me with my, you know, whatever my formation is in moral theology, I know more than the church about X. And, uh, and it doesn't matter whether we're dissenting you know, left or right, so to speak. Um, if we, if we look at something which is authentically taught by the church and say, I disagree, I will not hold that. We find ourselves in a difficult position. Now we're able to say, it's important for us as Catholics to say, okay, um, here's what I see in a, in a magisterial document what does it mean? Uh, what is its weight? Does it bind me? Is it definitive? Is it deliberative? Um, we're able to um, to legitimately say, okay, I, I'm reading this and it seems to me not to make sense in light of this, or it seems to me not to be in, in, in concert with this. Um, what does it mean and, 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 and what doesn't it mean? That's a reasonable exercise for a Catholic. And, um, and, it, and it's reasonable if something is not 
um, a definitive teaching. You know, the the Holy See has offered um, caution on the practice of, uh, of of embryo implantation. So, you know, so a person does IVF, a bunch of embryos are created, a few of them are implanted, the rest of them are put into freezers indefinitely. And um, you know, there are some people who implant those existing embryos into their um, into their own wombs as an act of sort of adoption, as it were, and carry the children to term and have them and those kinds of things. Um, embryo adoption is what it's referred to, and the church has expressed caution about embryo adoption. Flynn, thinking about embryo adoption, thinks that it's a noble and beautiful thing and wishes that it would be encouraged more. Um, and hearing the church say we express caution about it, Flynn says, well, okay, I hear the caution, but the caution doesn't bind me to say this is wrong. If the, However, if the church says tomorrow this thing is wrong, I will not understand it. But as a son of the church, if the church says in a definitive way, this thing is wrong, what am I to do but to say, okay, I I need to reform my own intellectual approach to this um, to get where the church is. And in the in the meantime, uh, I need to simply say, I don't understand why the church says this is wrong, uh, but she does. And therefore, I accept that. Another example, I'm sorry, but, you know, the Pauline privilege Um I don't understand. Oh, good. Let's pick a simple thing. <laughs> I don't understand the Pauline privilege. I don't understand why it can be. Okay, wait. Before you now, you, JD, if you're gonna go to the law, but not just <laughs> to the law, to the darkest, most obscure form of the law, <laughs> you're gonna have to explain to people. In and I'm gonna time you on this because otherwise this will get out of hand. You have. 20, no, I'm going to give you 15 seconds to explain the Pauline privilege. You're going to give me Starting now. Okay, you're going to give me 15 seconds to explain the Pauline privilege. The Pauline privilege says that a marriage entered into by two persons who are unbaptized can be dissolved by the authority of the church for the favor of the faith of one party after they've received baptism, if that party wants to contract marriage, a a new marriage with... Uh, uh, if that party wants to contract a new marriage, if the unbaptized person departs or will live peaceably without affront to the creator. In other words, um, uh, if two unbaptized people get married and one of them is baptized, one of them gets baptized, their marriage can be dissolved in favor of the faith for a new or by a new marriage. If the marriage breaks down because of the faith. If the marriage, well... (laughs) Yes, if the marriage breaks down because of the faith or, or yeah, I don't, I cannot, I cannot in my mind, Ed, intellectually defend the Pauline privilege on its face, except to say the church says this is true. And so I believe it. And I'm see, actually glad. I find, find that one. I, I kind of find that one very easy to understand intellectually, although I don't like it as a lawyer. Because it is basically the exercise of raw theological power. It is that the church has the power of the keys to do whatever we bind on earth can be bound on earth. And sure. We... I mean, in that sense, yeah. But I mean, the, the doing of it, the doing of it, the idea that marriage that marriage is a is a partnership for the whole of life, except when we say it's not, right? I mean, um, is a is a very tricky thing for me because it is a deviation from our base from our basic on our basic understanding of marriage, which is a partnership for the whole oh, of life. Absolutely. So I, I accept that the church has the authority to do it, and it's if it's sufficient for you to say, 
I believe in it because of the authority, but sort of the rationale of it, the rationality of it, I, I can't defend it, which is, my point is, I'm kind of glad I can't defend it because there's this one thing that I don't think I'm ever going to understand. There are lots of things I don't think I'm ever going to understand, but there's this thing that I don't think I'm ever going to understand that I come across from time to time. And all I can do with it is say, well, the church says it's so, and I submit to that. And I'm glad for that because it is an exercise in in filial obedience. And I need exercises in filial obedience to be a good son of the church. Absolutely. So we got way off. I, I went on a tangent here, but dissent, dissent is the hubris that says I know better than the gift of the magisterium, and, uh, and 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 not just the gift of the magisterium, the exercise of apostolic teaching authority. And so the the vaccine thing, where the CDF says this is this is true, uh, the vaccine thing, and then and then folks are saying no, it's not true. Um, and it's a consistent teaching of the church, right? I mean, the church, the church has been saying this is true about vaccines for quite some time now. Um, and, uh, and, and you know... The church was saying this about vaccines at a time when it would be reasonable to have said that the use of vaccines developed from these stem cell lines, or these cell lines, excuse me, um, is in fact incentivizing further abortions or the use of abortions for purposes of medical research, which is no longer the case to be able to say now. And I'll be candid if... Yeah, because this is... Those are... It's an, it's an aborted cell line from the 70s. I'll be candid. If a person said, what is, I, I do not understand the binding nature of this teaching. I want to understand the level of authority of this teaching. I want to understand the degree to which this decision of the CDF and the, the, the teaching of the church before it binds me. If a person was raising those questions, I, I would support them in raising those questions. But what we're seeing instead, because they're reasonable and legitimate questions, if we're going to be obedient to the church, we have to know what it is that we have to be obedient to. Um, but what's being said instead is, psh, psh, I disagree. And not just I disagree. The church is the church wrong. is wrong, and and that is um, that is the spirit of dissent. It's Protestantism. Yeah, um, and um, there are certain things about which dissent has been. You know, there have been there's been sort of consistent dissent against Humana Vitae in the church since the promulgation of Humana Vitae in 1968. The, the this this which says the church. You know, that, and that dissent says like the church is demanding of t- too much of people. Um, this is a different kind of dissent because this dissent is actually saying the church is demanding too little of people, um, which is sort of, I am more Catholic than the church. Uh, uh, I the, the church needs to be more rigorous in the way that I decree that the church should be more rigorous. And um, that that is, a, that is a different mode of expressing the same thing. It's not better or worse, but it's a different mode of expressing I know more than the church. And the question for me will be... Um, over 2021, as we're talking about stories of 2021, will there be a response to that from the bishops? Um, I, I, to be honest, I'm not optimistic that there will be. I think that, like many things, many bishops will just sort of expect this to go away, will issue positive statements about the vaccine, but will not address those who are saying that, that they know more than the church or they think the church is wrong about this. Um, but uh, to what degree will that grow and to what degree will that foment um, a growing sort of movement of I am a growing sort of movement of voices saying I'm more rigorous than the church, you know every word out of the bishop's mouth is just modernistic heresy, and the way the degree to which that movement, whether this will be another stone in the building of that movement which 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 um, rejects the the living reality of the church in favor of some fabricated idea of the church present or past either a sort of fantasy of a of a of a of a remnant church sort of living in the shadows of modern of the modernistic heresy or the fantasy of a church in the past that it no longer exists those things delve into you know delve into uh, just an increasing sort of 
separation from the lived reality of the church as the communion of the baptized and entrusted to our shepherds into we are more Catholic than the modernist church at the parish. And, and, and there, that can be really dangerous. And the weird, the weird thing is I see that those voices growing more and more influential. And I think this will be another sort of brick in the wall, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I think uh, the real risk here is that there is a, a continued time lag between what is happening with the growth of these sort of online dissenting uh, voices that, you know, are are usually based on personality and personal narrative and, I don't want to use the word charisma because that's certainly not what I see in them. Um, but compelling rhetoric, uh, absent actual expertise or let alone ecclesiastical authority that speak against the church, but wearing the sort of T-shirt that says, but I'm a Catholic. Right. Um, it, I mean, it's a sort of right-wing version of the, the left-wing Catholics who say, oh, I went to Catholic school. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think abortion's great. Yeah. I mean, exactly. it's, it's the same idea. Yeah. Um, but I, I wonder how quickly the hierarchy of the church will recognize the threat this is posing to souls. I, I don't know. I mean, I talk to a lot of priests who say, I, I hear about this at the parish more. I hear about this on campus more. More and more kids are sort of asking me about the cadre of voices who are saying, you know, that the bishops are not to be trusted and that the church is, most of the church is in the heresy of modernism um, and that they should reject the, these things. I, I hear from more and more priests who say that. And I think that these voices are increasingly influential, especially with younger Catholics. And, um, younger Catholics, we want to speak in favor of being Catholic by being with the church, not being blind to the reality of the church's failures to live as God wishes her to live, but or, but um, but being with the church and doing everything we can to maintain ecclesial communion with the church as she is. But I hear increasingly just this cadre even of priests who say, "Yeah, we're here. We're seeing more and more." Um, young Catholics sort of buying into the idea that there are there is the institutional church and then the real living church sort of living in exile or something like that, and which is Jansenism. Yeah, um, and and um, is it schism? Well, schism is the refusal of submission to the Roman Pontiff or communion uh, or or those who are in communion with him. So it's not schism until the bishops say knock that off. And uh, and the weird thing is I don't know how that many people in the hierarchy appreciate this or they think that's just something that's happening like kind of on the internet, which. Is, that that's exactly the risk. That is exactly the risk. Because they say, "Oh, well, this is just you know, it, it's on it's on the internet, whatever that is. It's on Twitter or YouTube or whatever it is." But I mean, you know, the, the, fine. But you know, that's not real life. It's not the, which okay, fine. I'm the first person to say Twitter isn't the real world, but it is the real world for an increasing number of people who are of a different generation to us, and and we ain't that old. I mean, we we're not that old, and, and yeah, and we're we're. We grew up kind of with the internet around, but we had to dial into it when we were kids, and uh, and um, and for people who are younger than us, it's even more entirely entirely the real world. And and you know, we have just spent all of us a year in which we have become more dependent on being online, and in which more of our socialization has moved into the realm of being online, even you know just texting with our friends instead of being in their presence and those kinds of things. So we're becoming more habituated to an ever an existence, a social existence ever more mediated by the, these realities of online, which I think for many bishops seems like, oh, just like, oh, it's just a couple of kids online making noise. But well, but here's the thing. Even if it is just a couple of kids online making noise, say it's just a couple of thousand, you know, we're a church of more than a billion and the church in the United States is, you know, tens of millions and say it's just, you know, 20,000 people in, you know, a dark corner of YouTube who, you know, watch 
It's not, by the way. A lot of these shows have far more viewers than that, but yeah. Right, but I'm saying even if it was, this is a threat to their souls. This is, right. you know, this is still thousands of souls at risk who are being right. led into a rejection of the church and the church's authority and the church's right. moral teaching, which right. is, you know, salasani maram, guys. <laughs> and imagine if you could go back to a point at which you could describe the Protestant, you know, the Protestant Reformation, Reformation as, hey, this is just a couple of weirdos with this weird thing called movable type and a printing press. If you could go back to that point and sort of nip the thing in the bud, you'd do it. Um, you do it every time. And, and, uh, and so I, I, re- I really and truly think understanding the way in which, and, and I think at often, you know, like we had the benefit of being formed in a period of time in which, and maybe we were naive to certain things that I don't know, but um, I can think it was clearer to me what sort of evangelical dynamic orthodoxy was and what it meant to be in communion with the church. And I think a lot of people now are struggling with that in ways that we didn't ha- have to. We didn't have certainly the scandal of McCarrick. Um, we didn't have the increasing fractured. We had certainly a fracture and polarized, but not to the degree, which is now an increasingly fractured and polarized political landscape in which people operate and think more and more frequently in politics, you know, as politics is their primary lens. It is harder to be a Catholic, to be formed as a Catholic now than I think it was even in our misspent youth not so long ago. So I have, I mean, but, but all the more importantly, I think for us to ask ourselves how the church in communion with the church, how the, how, how, how the communion of the baptized in communion with the bishops can respond to an increasing number of strident voices who say um, that is not that communion is not what it means to be a Catholic, and I'm the arbiter of what it means to be a Catholic. Yeah, absolutely. The we had we have gotten through two of the things that we wanted to talk about as big stories of 2021. We had a list of more, um, but we also needed we needed to talk about Felicity Huffman. I mean, what can we what can we do? Um, that was number one on my list. <laughs> So we're going to kind of call it, but the good thing about that is that we, the, the pillar podcast is a podcast each week as it were. And so we were going to continue to talk about other issues going forward, but, um, in the spirit Ed, of podcasting and, uh, and I don't know, but it seems to me that one cool way to end a podcast maybe could be, I'm just sort of spitballing here to kind of play a game and, uh, what a novel idea. <laughs> it is a novel idea. And, uh, we are recording this show on new year's day. Uh, 2021. And so I have uh, prepared for you, Ed, some uh, 21 trivia. Uh, Oh, no. Now, if I were really on the ball, uh, I would have prepared 21 questions, but I ain't, so I didn't. But I have some some 21 uh, related trivia, Ed, and I wonder if you might like to play 21 with me. Uh, When you say 21 related trivia, you you have put on the Twitters in the last few weeks, several references to something called 21 that appears to be musical, and I don't know what it is, and I'm kind of afraid to ask now, because everyone else seemed to know what you were talking about. Well, we can talk about that after the game, but are you ready to play 21 with me? Sure. I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm excited. Ed? As with so much of my life right now, I have no idea what's coming next. <laughs> Good. Well, this is an exercise then in abandonment. Uh, in, although, in this case, abandonment to my trivia game, which is not really a worthy thing to abandon yourself to. Ed, um... I think it is now, if it's not, it's about to be, but I think it might now be federal law that one must be 21 in order to purchase tobacco products. Is that correct? I believe that's probably true. Yeah, I, I thought it either was or it was about to be or whatever. But um, but that movement, which I think is now a federal movement, whether it's a law or it's about to be a law, began with the states. And what was the first U.S. state to make 21 the smoking age? 
well, I mean, it's bound to be either New York or California because everything terrible and garbage in this country generates itself out of the state houses of those. Those two are places. places where terrible things often happen, but often are not sort of the very first to have uh, ideas. So uh, usually the petri dish for the oh, uh, was it Massachusetts? That would be a good, you know, sort of first Lexington Concord. But uh, in in some cases, Ed, shall we say the last or almost last, the second to last, shall be first. Hawaii? Hawaii indeed. Hawaii in 2016, the first state to make 21 the smoking age. This is ridiculous. This is absolutely <laughs> absurd. I kind of this sort of puritanical yeah. nonsense. In this country, you can buy guns, drive cars, join the military, get married, but oh, you can't have a beer and a cigarette at your wedding reception. I mean, this is just absurd. It is. This it is. is. Mu- and you know what? It's bad economics. I'm sorry. It's bad economics. Sure. If you, I mean, these. You, if you really want to up tax revenue so you can sink it into things like, I don't know, a single-payer healthcare system, the best thing you could do is encourage the kids to start smoking young and paying those tobacco taxes, man, because there is no faster way to inject some cash into your massive bloated federal government. Yeah, get government. people addicted to things that, that you then tax heavily. You know what also ticks me off, and I'm going on a tangent now, but um, there are an increasing number of states that are making um, the sale of menthol cigarettes uh, oh, completely illegal. illegal. Yeah, completely and that's racism. Illegal, saying that menthol cigarettes are are targeted towards minority communities. I, yeah, I, it's racism. It's it's yeah, parentified too. It's weird. It's very weird. So, okay, Hawaii it was. Ed, what does the Twenty First Amendment do? Uh, does it repeal the Volstead Act? Uh, it repeals the Eighteenth Amendment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. It repeals the Eighteenth Amendment, which was prohibition, which was codified in law by the. You Volstead said Act. it, brother. So the Twenty First Amendment makes it legal for us to be drinking or buying booze again, whatever it is. Ed, in 1907, this one's really interesting. I like this one a lot. In 1907, a physicist named Duncan McDougall decided to conduct an experiment by which he tried to quantify the physical weight of souls. Dr. McDougall had the idea that souls have a physical presence in the body, a dispersed physical presence in the body, and that the physical weight of souls could be measured. And he said, Ed, that souls weigh on average 21 what? Grams? 21 grams. The 21 gram soul. You know how I knew that? How? Because anyone who was going to come up with an idea as silly as this was clearly going to use the metric metric system. system. (laughs) Now, Ed, a lot of people don't know this, but I do. You're English. um, And uh, uh, having grown up in in merry old England. um, And so I expect that you will know all things uh, trivial about the British monetary system. And so I'm going to ask you, Ed. Oh, no. Is this about old money? It's about old money. Oh, um, this is going to be hard. And in British currency, 21 shillings form what? A guinea? A guinea. A guinea, Ed, which is a word I didn't think you were allowed to say anymore, but in this context, you <laughs> can. Uh, 21 shillings formed a guinea until 18-something when the guinea was replaced by the pound. Uh, According to Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Are there still are there uh, still, are, are there still shillings? Have you ever seen a shilling? Yeah, I have several shilling coins. No, the decimalization didn't take place until I think the the 60s or 70s. Yeah, but the guinea um, was replaced by the pound in 18 something. Right, but you still had shillings so people would still colloquially refer to guineas being oh, the I total the number of shillings. So it, yeah, it was I think it was 12 shillings to the pound, but a guinea was still, you know. A guinea was 21 shillings. So yeah. Okay, good enough. Um again, I didn't know you could say guinea. Uh Ed, <laughs> why when someone is uh honored um Posthumously, why is it done with a twenty-one gun salute? Oh, I, I don't know. Now you got that right, Ed, because this was a trick question. Nobody knows. 
Oh, okay. We've been doing 21 gun salutes for a long time. It has something to do with, we used to do gun salutes on boats, and then we did them on the land, and it has something to do with that, but... Well, no, but I mean, there are there there are a specified number of guns for different levels of salute. And the best we can come up with is the, tw- is the specification is because the law says so. But as far as I could tell from, honestly, I dove hard into this question for a solid three or four minutes. And the best that I could come up with is <laughs> nobody knows. So I'm sure that reader, uh, listeners will tell me otherwise, but I believe the answer is nobody knows or because the law says so. I'll take the win. Ed, uh, you know, you and I, um, when we think about 21, probably both think about... Uh, Sitting down at the blackjack table for uh, uh, a game or two, or if you're anything like me, sitting down at the blackjack table and then suddenly finding that it's eight hours later and the sun has come up. Um, but uh, you know, blackjack is a is a is a is a is a pastime enjoyed by many. And a blackjack at getting blackjack means hitting twenty one with the first two cards dealt. Uh, so you so the way to do that is an ace and a face. My question for you, Ed, is how many ways can you get blackjack in the first two cards? Oh, come on. I can't do multiplication in my head. I'm going to give you an over-under here. Oh, More okay. than 50 or fewer. Oh, to do an ace in the face, four suits, uh, jack, queen, king, three. Uh, I'm going to say under. Oh, so close in that there were two answers and there was the other one. 64. <laughs> 64 ways that you can get black jack in the first two cards. Still, Close. Ed, um, this team, here's a question more towards your heart, although you're English, so maybe I should ask a cricket question, but I'm going to ask a baseball question. You like baseball. Ed, this team has appeared in the World Series 21 times. It's probably the Yankees. Oh, I'm so sorry. sorry. Well, the Yankees have appeared in the World Series 21 times, but they've appeared in the oh. World Series 40-something times. This right. team, I should say, has appeared in the World Series only 21 only, times. Only, ah, uh, The Dodgers? The Dodgers it is. Well done, Ed. Well done. And, Ed, the most... I'm trying to think even how to say this. Um, the most years played in the majors before... The, the record for the most years played in the majors before appearing in the World Series is how many years do you think? Thinking about the theme of the... This is by a player? Yeah, by a player. Uh, I... Oh... Most years before or most years without? The most years played in the majors before appearing in a World Series by a player. So so the sort of longest career right. before appearing in a World Series that culminates in appearing in a World Series. And again, this is actually not the question. This is a warm-up to the question. So thinking about the theme of this quiz... What it's 21 years. 21 years, right. So the record for the most years uh, played in the majors before appearing in the World Series is 21. How many players do you think have played 21 years in the majors before appearing in a World Series? Four. Oh, close again in that this, uh, in that four is divisible by this number. <laughs> is it one? <laughs> the number is two. Two players, okay. Ed, Joe Necro, who went to the World Series with Minnesota in 1987, and Mike Morgan, who went to the World Series in Arizo- with Arizona in 2001, had 21-year careers each before appearing in the World Series, which means, Ed, that if you started playing baseball now and you could make your career last until your early 50s, 50s you might have a shot at the World Series. You know, the wonderful thing about being a Cubs fan is you always kind of feel you like... think it's centuries. The Cubs think it's centuries, right? Well, not just that the Cubs think it's centuries, but at least until they won it all in 2016, you know, if you, if you, were, if you saw yourself aging out of the bracket in which people are normally given a chance to play professional baseball, if you were a Cubs fan, you kind of going to go, yeah, but 
I mean, looking at the talent on the field, maybe my day will come. I yeah, mean, right. you know. Because they had what? They had Ryan Sandberg and then they had that kid who broke his arm, you know, rookie of the year. Did they have any, have they had any other good players in theirs? Uh, well, they had, they had three Hall of Famers on one team in the 80s who finished in last place. So get your header on that. You had a you had a baseball team with three Hall of Fame players at the same time, and they finished in last place. Now, Ed, I thought that this next question was a gimme, but apparently it's not. Um, this British rock band performed the song 1921, which begins, Got a feeling 21 is going to be a good year, especially if you and me see it in together. Presumably The Who. It is indeed The Who. It is indeed The Who. The second song in the infamous and famous and Best in category, rock opera, Tommy. So, Ed, well done. I didn't keep track of the score, but I don't really care about the score anyway. Do you? No, not especially. Okay. Well, listeners, you have listened now to our inaugural first real episode of The Pillar Podcast. Thank you for being with us. The Pillar Podcast will be back for you next week. And if you want to check out the journalism of uh, Ed Condon and yours truly, J.D. Flynn, check us out at PillarCatholic.com. The Pillar Podcast is a production of... Pillar Media and Ed and JD joined. I'm your host and the Pillar's editor in chief, JD Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed, partner Ed Condon, and uh, this episode is produced by Dan Diagostino. See you later, guys. As long as we got each other.